Okay, so uh, here we are, uh, chapter four, the general intellect unit, brain of the firm, reading group. Um, we are talking about uh, chapter four, the organization of unthinkable systems. Um, and Beer in the intro uh, describes this as follows. So, uh, of course, we all know that uh, things cannot be organized down to the last iota, uh, and that indeed an awful lot of things just organize themselves. But when we know exactly why, we can approach the problem of how. This is the subject of chapter four, the nature of self-organization in very large systems. By understanding these principles properly, we may well be able to facilitate regulation without imposing it. And that is something all good managers try to do. There are some more new words here, which experience again shows to be useful to managers, with an account of a deceptively simple little machine I call an algonode. I have explained why in the text. Uh, but why another new word? The answer is that no one has actually isolated this mechanism before, and therefore it has no name. Uh, we all know about it, but the intention of cybernetics is to try to make such vaguely understood tricks perfectly explicit and clear, so that we really know how to use them. In chapter 5, this is, okay, that's chapter 5. So, uh, we have self-organization, we have the algodonode, uh, there's a couple other things covered in this chapter, uh, but uh, what are some general thoughts about the organization of unthinkable systems? I did uh, love Elon. Oh, go ahead. Jay, you had your hand up? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know how explicit it was in the text, but um, one of the things I got from it was that, you know, well, actually, it was quite explicit in the exponentials and how many states and input states um, these things blow up into. Maybe that was last week, and I'm mixing up with that. But um, so, I believe one of the ways that he says, more or less, that you can deal with this kind of stuff is to abstract and to treat a lot of these kind of states um, as the same sort of class of states. Um, and so, abstraction can serve to reduce variety in that kind of way. I believe. Um, so that's one of the things I took away from it. I also quite liked, um, towards the end, talking about the, uh, almost translations of meta languages as a bridge between layers of the system. I thought that was really useful. And it's clear, like, this is what leads into the next chapter, uh, for sure. And it's going to lead directly into, uh, the VSM. Right. Uh, absolutely. And uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, um, the, 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 the meta language part was, was the part that really uh, uh, jumped out at me, uh, partially because, like, yeah, the, it, it reflects something I, uh, I think a lot, of, a lot about of, of the connection between, like, this sort of stuff and, like, really, like, philosophy of science and that how, yeah, like, uh, uncertainty means that, uh, you know, they're, they're, um, uh, or, you know, incompleteness, you know, and, and I guess also, you know, un uncertainty um, uh, 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 to, uh, uh, to another degree, you know, um, yeah, makes it so that it re there really is just an upper limit of how good a model you can ever have. And so, yeah, instead of like trying to perfectly model everything and like you know ha have a uh, um uh yeah you know, uh uh yeah 
try to have like a, a map that that really is like the size of the territory really you know it's it's about it's about rules um uh you know of communication between you and your environment and how to you know achieve your goals i also like that in general like he you know he poses communication as hard you know, as you know, systems are t are very different internally, and you know, like uh, having any kind of coordination, like uh, uh, you know, any kind of symbol that like really gets information across, like like that, like that's that's a difficult task. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I uh, especially was interested with this uh, kind of uh, metal language discussion in this chapter because it reminded me a lot of the way that uh, Racket is structured um, as a programming language. Um, so that I was like, oh, this is sort of like a language based programming is, is you know, kind of a coherent with what uh, Beer is saying here. Uh, Rudy, do you have another uh, thing to add to this? Uh, all right, so let's uh, let's dive in then. Uh, let's start at the beginning. I, I uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this um, there's a book that was actually posted in uh, on the on the channel about from Maspero and Ray's, uh, which was talking about effective communication, and it he was talking about it deviating from the Shannon idea of information theory, uh, which was just simply about communicating over noisy channels. And moved into effective. Effective like communication means that you are expecting in you're expecting response. So it's a it's a dialogue, not just like sending a message one way. And that really I, I do think is about like bridging those meta languages. Right. Uh, that certainly adds like a layer of complexity to that transmission model um, because the transmission model kind of assumes that you're operating in the same language, uh, as far as I understand. Uh, whereas, um, you know, you can uh, have translation problems. Uh, Matt, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, my, uh, um, yeah. The, the the fact that hum a few bars and I'll fake it is like a thing for you know uh, human intelligences is you know it, it, it is yeah it, it's it's really quite incredible because like that 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 is the kind of thing that like we're starting to sort of be able to teach. Um, uh, um, some uh, machine learning algorithms, but like, yeah, the 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 idea of like having this um, not not only you know um a set of shared symbols, but you know be able to just sort of interact with something and sort of figure out on um, some symbols like to settle on is like you know that that that's that's a huge thing. Uh, also, um, uh, when when it's in racket, um, uh, um, so you know, um, a lot of this stuff really echoes to me. Um, Douglas Hofstadter and uh, Gerdella Scherbach, and you know, he loves Lisp. Like, you know, for really, uh, I don't really know much about like racket specifically, but I mean, like, I imagine it's the same. You know, so it's on the same angle. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's along the same lines. Uh, it just has kind of explicit support for defining languages and using a language to solve a problem. Um. So it's 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 a it's a little um, you know it's an addition on top of normal list, but it's working in the same paradigm. Absolutely, um, don't know too much about it myself. Just started using it, so I can't speak definitively to that. But it's a it's a good good approach. Um, and Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah the. The philosophy of language-oriented programming is if you have a problem or a series of problems are all sort of collect clustered together, then you design a language that addresses that problem. And so 
like in object-oriented programming, you figure out what the objects are, you create those objects, and the program is built around those objects. You know, in typed programming, you figure out what the data types are. In language-oriented programming, you figure out what language describes the problem, and you build that language. That's and Racket is set up that way. It's like a, the whole macro system in Racket is designed that you use Racket to write the language that solves the problem, and then you work on the problem in that language. By language-oriented design, you're almost, uh, is that another word for domain-driven design? Sort of uh, the idea from, what is it, Bill, Bill Evans? Because um, I've heard, because his conception is very, it's very much like Java object-oriented type of uh, text, but he says the ultimate ultimate goal of a computer system almost is a DSL, main specific language. Uh, yeah. So you are supposed to eventually uh, coalesce into something like that. Right. You keep evolving, refining the language model that you're using. Yeah, I mean, the, you use Racket to build a DSL around the domain of your problem. I mean, you could use it in all kinds of ways. It's a Turing complete language. You can do what you want with it, but it was designed that you use Racket to design a language around the issues you're dealing with. Yeah, so um, that's uh, definitely uh, interesting given the contents of this chapter. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, we'll go ahead and dive into it then. Um, so uh, we start out with uh, the discussion of complexity in nature um, and we get the the sort of the map and the country uh, example uh, <clears throat> the best computer of natural systems is the natural system itself think of the sea it is calm the tide turns and a great wind arises the water is grossly disturbed can we imagine having to program a computer with the relevant inputs of the situation in order to discover the price, precise output in terms of ruffled water the task is hopeless, yet the sea works continuously, inexorably. It uh, <clears throat> produces the answer. The answer is the waves and the current, the vortices, the flying spray. Um, so this is uh, in prose expressing what Beer's poem uh, that is included in um, the cybernetic brain uh, also describes, right? It's, it's the same uh, idea. Uh, if, if anyone remembers that, we covered it on uh, GIU, uh, just talking about <clears throat> the waves as these kind of collapsing systems, but the, the water perfectly computing its own output continuously. Um, and that is something that is peculiar uh, to nature. Um, so, uh, was there were there any thoughts about this uh, nature as the perfect simulation of itself uh, idea? Uh, the nature is the answer to itself. Uh, oh, Rudy, go ahead. I think this is where I, I finally get to Jeremy's point that there's a lot of Aristotelianism in beer because he's always saying like the point of this is what it does. The point of this is what it does. The point of this is what it does. And this is also a value statement in some way. I necessarily disagree with it, but there, this statement is not as obvious as it seems. 
Uh, yeah, can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, he's basically saying the point of the Earth is to be the Earth and survive. And it's assuming some sort of teleology, uh, sense of purpose, where there just might simply be no sense of pur purpose. The Earth just is, rather than it solving its own equations. And then, of course, then you can say, you know, there's God plan or whatever. But even without going into that, you're just making the first step in assuming that everything has a purpose. Yeah. And that is already an assumption that is not necessarily obvious. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I think uh, it, I guess it's an, it's a kind of intuition that I can certainly see arising from the practical orientation of a systems analyst or a kind of like manager or managing consultant um, analyzing all these systems and trying to come up with models of them and interacting with reality in that way. I can see the appeal of that kind of uh, toletic model. Um, Third Creed, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think later on in the chapter, he does kind of have the ultimate motivation of any system be to survive. And that's almost like pragmatism, you know, as a, like, uh, I have a very naive understanding of all these things, but um, it seems like, uh, it seems like it just appears to reflect that model, that sort of Aristotelian teleologic model now. Later on in the chapter, he kind of gets to where he says, hey, uh, why why are we doing any of this thing? Well, it's not so much, what can we say about what it's doing? Well, is there anything we can say about it? Only one thing we can really say, and that's uh, that it's trying to survive, which almost is like anti that. It's sort of just pure pragmatism, and almost like Rorty or something. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, definitely I can see some uh, analogies to, to Dewey uh in in what's being described here too um in terms of the the pragmatism um i i guess yeah it's i do get the sense though like in beer's poetry that there is something um beyond simply a recognition of pragmatic self-reproduction in his thought uh like when he talks about sort of like the perfection of of, of the water uh, as being like you know beyond calculation but calculating itself perfectly uh there there, there is something that does seem to be like a kind of you know philosophical appreciation for the self-arising of nature um that's this maybe not entirely just pragmatic, um, you know, uh, obviously it, it, pragmatism can describe a variety of, of philosophical positions. So it's, I, I, I just mean that in the most pejorative sense of like, well, it's just purely pragmatic. Um, uh, okay. Well, that, that's, that's pretty interesting. And I, I am interested to see like, you know, the other elements of Aristotelianism that come out in beer or the other elements of pragmatism that come out in beer, because I know that, like, uh, what is it, uh, eudaimonia is a big uh, concept for him as well. So it's got that kind of Aristotelian bent. Um, but we'll, we'll keep talking about that as we go on. 
Um, so uh, there's this discussion about uh, the biosphere, uh, about how it manages to organize itself, given that, you know, like one little element of it, these uh, aphids uh, could produce, you know, 822 million tons of aphids in a single season. Um, but somehow the biosphere does not just become like a paperclip factory that only produces paperclips. Um, so the ecological system is self-organizing. It itself, it is itself the vast computer that gets the answers right, or roughly so, give or take a few plagues, famines, and so forth. But it has no program, no planning department, no licenses to breed, no bureaucracy. It just works. We, the intelligent humans, interfere with this system, unbalancing it for our own ends. Thus, we increase crop and livestock yields, but we treat the lower orders of life as if we were gods outside the ecological system, forgetting that we ourselves are very much part and parcel of the whole. The result is that we can fairly effectively control the pro proliferation of uh, Pasturella pestis, the uh, bacillus, uh, which gives rise to bubonic plague, but not the proliferation of our own species, Homo sapiens. Uh, we can see that they, our cows are fed, but not our own brothers have over half the world. Um, so here, I mean, there's a few things that are interesting. Like, Beer suggesting that like a plague is nature, like is an error in nature, it doesn't get the answers right um, is, is an interesting suggestion. Like, I don't know why you would isolate that as like, I guess this, okay. So I think this kind of gets into like the discussion of error at the end of the chapter, right? Like if you read this at first glance, I was like, wait, is, is he saying that like in a, in a sort of a truly perfect natural system, there would be no plagues um this is like something wrong uh but when he gets to talking about error at the end of the chapter and how error can be useful or functional or it should be in the system uh then i i think it's kind of like uh we can appreciate that he sees a he sees a meaningful role for these like big swings uh in the system to to adjust things uh, so what do people think about this, uh, this here section? Uh, okay, we'll go to Third Creed. This may be part of a similar sort of misunderstanding I have about it, but yeah, I read this as, as like, not an error in its purpose, but an error in its stability. It's like, it's an oscillation. It's like, there's a big swing that's a famine, a big swing that's a plague, but like, uh, but then it, it's, He's like remarking on how it self-organizes as a system, and it's like, oh, it looks like it's stopped. That's how I'm. That's how I'm interpreting it, though. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense uh, to to view it as an oscillation and uh, to view it from a perspective of homeostasis. Uh, Jay, go ahead. Um, yeah, just to agree with that, really, I saw like a couple of references to error and inaccuracy in this chapter, and to me, they kind of seem to be kind of different kinds of error. Um, so you have error, which is like an inaccurate value being read. Um, you have error, which is like a destabilization to the system. 
and you have error that is just like um just not being hyper focused and kind of just exploring without knowing whether or not you're going to be getting anywhere good and just like throw it. it's like more like variation really um so i guess this is more just destabilization rather than exploration or you know like re-establishing balance or anything like that um unless someone here has like a deeper knowledge of things like plagues where like they play a role in the ecological sphere i don't know uh i mean uh, i'm not an ecologist but uh it does seem to be like it would be um perhaps like overly idealistic to view a uh ecology that does not have isolations as the or oscillations as the ideal and that and that or to view like plagues as like purely functional towards some kind of like you know ecological ideal state uh i think there's there's probably something quite subtle going on here in terms of oscillations and system stability uh, that we should continue to think about. Uh, Matt, go on. Yeah, also it's like on 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 a practical level, like like I mean, uh, it, it's it, it's it's weird to see like this be like described. Um, uh, um, you know, like like connected to other things because I mean, this is also just literally what you have to do with like machine learning algorithms. Um, uh, uh, what's it's for? Um, uh, you know, there's a thing up, uh, you know, uh, vanishing gradients that basically, and you know, it's it's a problem with some kinds of models like more than others. But like, you know, you it, 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 it learns the thing too well, and not only learns it too well, now, now um, it actually can't learn anymore. And uh, you know, there's all this stuff you have to do, you know, including yeah, ways of introdu introducing, um, uh, you know, either uh, people call it either error or bias, and uh, I don't think either of those are very good words for it. But yeah, I mean, like like a, like a, a little a little bit of random just to just to nudge it out of like um, because it might just be in um, I think another relevant term is like um um like a, a um uh. It can go from having like a lot of potential variety to really just um, oscillating between like two states or whatever, and now it actually can't go into any others. And so like you just need a little, a little, a little bit of randomness, a little bit of noise to just you know uh, make sure that it's not just like perfectly sliding in between like th this uh, equilibrium. Right. Uh, yeah. For sure. Uh, Nico, go ahead. Yeah, sure. For the uh, pulses and this kind of like your non-equilibrium state, it's a huge concept of systems ecology. And so far as this is how systems maximize, I guess, their power, it's kind of a teleology of sorts for ecology itself. The idea that these systems' purpose is to, you know, again, maximize power in the most obvious sense. But um, the coupling of like predator and prey models is like where this like first idea came off from, you know, like you have the uh, the prey shifts, the predator shifts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then as for like diseases, they play crucial roles for this density-dependent response. So far as if you have a kind of one species taking over, it will prevent it from you know actually destabilizing the entire system itself. So there are positive roles for it, but I mean, yeah. Right. Uh, well, I guess we, we do sort of have to read these comments as being uh, oriented towards this idea of survival uh, or, you know, we could say power maximization if we wanted to phrase it in a different ter uh, terms. Um, okay, uh, so that's uh, that section there. Um, and 
we get this uh, talk about an anastomotic reticulum um, that we cannot properly understand or do not properly understand. Um, they are not, we can be sure, optimal ways in a mathematical sense. There is not the computing capacity. It can hardly be too often repeated to evaluate all possible outcomes and choose the best on some criterion of efficiency. There is instead a mechanism which selects particular modes of organization that are survival worthy. So, um, you know, I was just talking with Tom uh, and Shane on uh, General Intellect. You know, we were doing an episode on uh, an article about planning. Um, and this seems really relevant to that because um, – if we look at nature from the pers from this perspective of sort of like unknowable systems, then we should certainly think about economic plans in a similar way, um, because these are like anastomotic reticula uh, that we can't fully model, and we shouldn't be approaching it from the perspective of um, absolute optimization. But rather, what he says here, uh, evaluate all possible outcome or sorry, uh, a mechanism which selects particular modes of organization that are survival worthy. So, you know, the selection body here would presumably be in planning, like some kind of democratic decision making process. And it would just have to be presented with reasonable options to, to be chosen amongst. Um, yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on this section. Uh, any any other thoughts here? Uh, Jay, go ahead. Uh, there's a couple of notions from AI that might be relevant here. Like one, like one of them is obviously perfect rationality, which like even most like optimistic AI practitioners would agree on isn't reasonable, right? Maybe all. Um, then there's this other notion of calculative rationality, where like you start the calculation at a particular time, and you might eventually get to an op optimal outcome, but by the time you do the moments passed, right? Um, and so that matters in like dynamic environments, which are always changing. Um, it might matter less in like a, on a chessboard where calculated rationality is perfectly fine. Um, you can keep on going until you get the answer you want. Um, and then of course you have like the notions of like, uh, bounded rationality, uh, which I think is from Herbert Simon, where you just kind of use the resources you have to get like a good enough um, solution that you need um but then of course that pushes the thing down the road is onto like what is a good enough solution but then maybe this kind of um, performative uh, operation will come into effect there where you're kind of going backwards and forwards um with this, these feedbacks and you're trying to figure out what that good enough solution is um as you go rather than trying to decide up ahead um, because another idea in ai um is that like problem fo problem formation has to follow goal formation um, and one of the things Beer is saying here is that sometimes you can't even formate your goal, formulate your goal. And so much of AI writing like assumes that this goal is easy to formulate and then you know the problem is formulated after that. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of these ideas are pretty important to that actually. Um, like especially this one about like you might even not even have a good idea of what your goal is. Yeah, uh, you know, this is why uh like, for instance, on uh, Lumio, when you start a new Lumio instance, uh, you begin with, like, your purpose, right? 
um, because goal formation can help quite a lot um, in achieving things. Um, I even have this other book here. What is it? Um, yeah, this one, Theory U. Uh, whoop, it's a backwards, I guess, <laughs> mirrored. But uh, it, it is uh, entirely this huge book, which is entirely about goal formation in groups. Um, and, but, you know, Beer is right that like in many cases, that's just not something you can easily access. Uh, you're probably going to be more effective if you can, <laughs> but let's consider the case where that's more of a big question mark, um, because that's a very common case, um, in, in interaction. Um, all right. So, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. I think this dovetails nicely into what happens in the bulk of the chapter where Beer is comparing algorithms with heuristics. Um, because, I mean, what Beer is basically saying is that we think in terms of algorithms, but the heuristics are really the only way we can tackle these exceedingly complex systems. So it, He's setting up all of these exceedingly complex systems and saying, go for it. How are you going to control the sea? And then he says, well, what if we dropped the concept of control from an algorithmic control to a heuristic control? And so that's why this is a huge idea that really governs the entire VSM is to use heuristics where an algorithm can't possibly tackle the problem. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, Rudy, go ahead. Uh, yeah, muted, Kyle. Uh, I said, uh, Rudy, go ahead. <laughs> Thanks. I was muted on the software side. <laughs> uh, I have a hardware mute, and it's confusing me a bit here. Um, Rudy, please go ahead. Yeah, I'm thinking about this heuristics versus algorithm. And even if it sounds very intuitive, I'm not sure where you can put a line between them. You know what I mean? Like this is like, oh, of course, you know, just go up is an uh, is a heuristic, but that's also an algorithm in a way. Just go up, right? If this 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 direction is up, then use this one. It's a bit weird. I mean, I understand what he's trying to say, but it's not that clean. Like machine learning, one could argue is an algorithm, but it's way more of a heuristic the way a neural network learns. And it is a precise algorithm. Uh, Steve? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, can you hear me? Good, okay. Um, yeah, no, I, I was really uh, taken by this heuristic versus algorithm thing. I mean, on one sense, I agree really with um, what you're saying, right? The sort of notion that like, go up is an algorithm, fine. Um, but the idea that like you can apply heuristics when you don't even necessarily know the goal that you want to get to, which he emphasized a number of times, right? So that my interpretation there was like the algorithm is, you know, this is the goal that I specifically want to get to, and here's all the steps to get there. Whereas you know, the heuristic will just point you to the direction. Maybe you get there, and when you're there, you can realize, oh, this is where I was supposed to be, or where I was trying to get to all along. And um when I, looping back to something we said before we got into the details, what was really interesting to me was this notion that like translating the meta language idea to 
how that turns into heuristics versus algorithms, right? Like how you can tra- how you can communicate the heuristics sort of down the chain such that that turns into effectively local search, um, which, you know, sounds hard. And, um, you know, curious to see how that, that plays out, but I hadn't really thought about it in that, in that way. Like you want to, you want to just nudge the system along in a communicable way. Um, and you need to find the ways to express that. Um, what he doesn't talk about though, of course, is that like, you know, local heuristics aren't necessarily going to get you to where you need to go. And I think he kind of talks about how, well, you know, what we saw based on the, the discussion from um, chapter two, I think, which is that the heuristics don't need to be perfect, but inevitably the feedback will sort of put you in the right direction. But like, that's not always true, right? You know, local search gets you into local minima and that can be a problem. Um, so uh, yeah, that's all. Right, um, <clears throat> very good points. And uh, Justin, and then we'll go to Matt. Yes, yeah, so a little bit about the difference between heuristics and algorithms. I think Rudy, you had a, you had a really good point that it, the distinction really isn't clear at all. Uh, and I'm wondering, I don't know, maybe, so I, I think we all have like multiple heuristics and just rules of thumb guide, guiding us along. So maybe it could be something like, but each one of those rules of thumb might be able to be, able to be extra, expressed kind of um, algorithmically. So maybe it's sort of like a probabilistic switching between multiple algorithms, something like that, when you're working heuristically rather than algorithmically. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I forgot exactly where, where, where it was in the, in, in the chapter, but like uh, one, one of the things he's, uh, um, uh, uh, he, he mentions is like um, uh, having like a meta optimizer that's also optimizing over like what time horizon you're, uh, you know, you're, you're paying attention to. I thought like that, that was like, you know, that, 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 that rang true is, is, is just like a very, you know, uh, um, yeah, that, that, that's that's just part of the process of uh, yeah, especially when, when it comes to like limitations of, of like a uh, uh, you know like local search and stuff. Like uh, you know, I've heard of like um you know trading strategies um uh, and how you know one one of the things that you have that you, you have to think about is like you know what like, what is the time frame of this? Like, is this something where you know if it's not making money after a week, you know, like you, you should you should abandon it, or is it something where you know like uh, uh you know it's over the time frame of a month and and like uh yeah that, that uh you know exactly what the horizon is is uh um yeah is 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 uh is is part of one of these um one of these systems yeah and i guess that's you know applicable to both algorithms and heuristics right um that you probably have algorithms that are designed to certain time scales and then heuristics as well like you know um we we have like heuristics about getting ready for winter by saving up stuff right and so that that's a kind of seasonal heuristic um but it doesn't prescribe a specific course of action so much as a class of actions to be taken um all right uh so why don't we we take a quick look at uh what exactly Beer says about these two things, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the ambiguity between them, maybe. Um, so page 52, um, he says, uh, the first of these terms <coughs> is algorithm. An algorithm is a technique or a mechanism which prescribes how to reach a fully specified goal. Um, so, you know, uh, plotting a flight plan, finding a square root, um, 
Uh, a method of finding the square root is an algorithm, and so is a computer program. The last is important because we shall soon have to clear up some confusion about the capabilities of computers. A computer can do only what it is precisely told to do. The programmer has to write an algorithm then, which will exactly determine the computer's next move in any set of circumstances, whatever. The second of the terms we shall need is heuristic. Uh, okay, uh, this is an English adjective, not often used perhaps, meaning serving to find out, which has been turned into a noun by contracting an heuristic method into an heuristic. Uh, an heuristic specifies a method of behaving which will tend towards a goal which cannot be precisely specified because we know what it is but not where it is. Uh, so suppose you're trying to reach the peak of a conical mountain enveloped in cloud. It must have a highest point, but you don't know uh, the comp compass bearing. The instruction, keep going up, will get you there wherever there is. That is an heuristic. Uh, take care of the pence and the pounds will look after themselves is an attempted heuristic for being wealthy. Heuristics prescribe general rules for reaching general goals then and do not typically prescribe an exact route to a located goal as does an algorithm. There are, after all, an infinite number of paths up the mountain and it does not matter much which path is taken, although some routes may be quicker than others. These two notions are very important in cybernetics for in dealing with unthinkable systems it is normally impossible to give a full specification of a goal and therefore impossible to, to prescribe an algorithm. But it is not usually difficult, uh, too difficult to prescribe a class of goals so that moving in some general direction will leave you better off by some definite criterion than you were before. To think in terms of heuristics rather than algorithms is at once a way of coping with pro proliferating variety. Instead of trying to organize it in full detail, you organize it only somewhat, you then ride on the dynamics of the system in the direction you want to go. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, does that really help us understand this any better? That an algorithm has a fully specified goal and a heuristic uh, does not. Uh, Jay, go ahead, and then Matt. Um, maybe that is just the definitions that he's using, um, and we can't really read that much more into them. Um, but I was, I was just going to say that, like, I can imagine heuristics that do have fully specified goals, right? <laughs> like one could be, you know, keep, uh, keep warm for the winter is maybe a fully specified goal, and then the heuristic is just that, and then you do what you need to do to to fulfill that heuristic i guess um so yeah for me it's not but maybe those are the definitions that you've just read out there so maybe then that it is as clear as it seems <laughs> or as you know we're overcomplicating it or something uh matt and then steve uh yeah i'm i'm i'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe like um maybe like the way they talk uh, th this in like um you know the UK in like the 50s was different because I mean he's just literally describing a search algorithm but maybe like they didn't call those algorithms like uh, in the 50s like because uh, I mean I guess like um you know operations research and stuff was sort of like a different field so like I I feel like maybe we're just dealing with some terminological drift because I mean like you know if you crack open an algorithms textbook he's just using nice language to describe like the third thing you'll say. <laughs> 
So maybe, I, I think maybe he, he just means here like uh, things that, you know, things that are sort of like a little bit more unpredictable. Yeah, and so, you know, um, uh, just like, um, you know, uh, you know, job shop scheduling and traveling salesman stuff and uh, uh, and search versus like stuff that's like a little bit more predictable. Like I feel like th that's just what he's sort of getting at. Or maybe just something that incorporates feedback. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and Steve. Yeah, I think I'm interpreting his uh, what he's trying to say in kind of like uh, more like choices, right? The heuristic at every point of the of the what you're doing, like there's a choice that you need to make on how to proceed. Um, at the end of it, right, you've made a series of choices that you can string together and say, like, this is the plan to how I get there, and that's the algorithm, right? And it's like, that exists, it doesn't matter how you decided that, but the, the heuristics are the, are the instantaneous choices that you need to make along the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's, I think there is some, like, historical ambiguity here with, with how this is coming, like how he's arriving at these sorts of semantics. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, well, I guess we just need to bear in mind then going forward uh, that by algorithm, he means uh, an algorithm with a fully specified goal, and by heuristic, he means an algorithm with a generally specified goal. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of uh, what we're working with here. Um, so uh, next um, goes on to uh, talking about uh, the dissimilarity between the two approaches. Uh, the strange thing is that we tend to live our lives by heuristics and try and control them by algorithms. Our general endeavor is to survive, yet we specify in detail, catch the 845 train, ask for a raise, uh, how to get this unspecified and unspecifiable goal. Uh, we certainly need these algorithms in order to live coherently, but we also need heuristics, and we are rarely conscious of them. This is because our education is planned around detailed analysis. We do not, we learn, really understand things unless we can specify their infrastructure. The point came up before in the discussion of transfer functions, and now it comes up again in connection with goals. Know where you are going and organize to get there could be the motto foisted on us and on to our firms. And yet we cannot know the future. We can only have rough ideas as to what we or our firms want, and we do not understand our environment well enough to manipulate events with certitude. Birds evolve from reptiles, it seems. Did a representative body of lizards pass a resolution to fly? If so, by what means could the lizards have organized their genetic variety to grow wings? One has only to say such things to recognize them as recognize them as ridiculous, but the birds are flying this evening outside my window. This is because heuristics work while we are still sucking the pencil which would like to prescribe an algorithm. Uh, so a very nice uh, little example there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think this is like getting to sort of that pragmatism uh, connection this is definitely sort of getting to the um, Deweyan principles of education, right? Um, uh, being able to do sort of like critical problem solving and experimentation in the classroom and that kind of stuff. Um, and absolutely, I have encountered as a teacher uh, the problem of 
you know, uh, nowhere going and organized to get there or the problem of uh, detailed analysis as the be all and end all. Uh, because, you know, when I was teaching English in Japan, I would just like take my students outside and get them to describe things in practical terms because like they had never used English outside of a testing or classroom context. And, and so I was trying to say, like, use the language for something. Just, like, get your head around the idea that this language could actually be used for something as, a, as opposed to just being – its only utility being to get you test marks, uh, to get you a better job. Um, and it's a major challenge because you're up against the whole education system when you try to do that. Um, so, uh, Third Creed, go ahead. Uh I raised my hand to to riff on what you were saying, and then I realized how off like of the point this might be. But just I was gonna say that I was a music. My first degree was in music composition. I was in like the academies for for music, and like uh, uh, that that's um, that's been my experience of like how the academy teaches is like uh, you people stop using music practically or think about how it's to be used or think about why people have used music for the last you know however long humans have been doing musical things and it becomes uh there's there's a really uh there's a focus on not just on the craft of music making which would be fine but on a sort of just uh music to pass exams and music and and it's it's like a a, a really big cultural problem but that's just a riff on what you were saying it, it really doesn't probably contribute much to the fundamental conversation no i mean i, I think that's that's good to hear because you know um <laughs> There's many contexts in which this happens and they tend to be isolated from each other, right? Like, you know, I have my experiences with language teaching or philosophy teaching, but I have never really been in a music classroom and seen that whole process. Um, so it's, it's really good to hear, um, you know, however, you know, 100 plus years after Dewey, uh, or we're getting there, I guess, we're getting close to 100. Um, that uh you know and 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 however many you know thousands upon thousands of education uh majors who have been taught dewey there are uh we still get really uh kind of similar outcomes um yeah yeah um okay so uh that's that's a very good point uh, all good points all around um so moving on then uh so the failure to understand the role of heuristics in complex systems at large slops over into much computer thinking. The computer itself can be analyzed, can be understood in detail after all. We designed it. We've already declared roundly that a computer program is an algorithm. Some thought is therefore needed to understand where heuristics come into the computer picture. First, the need for them arises once the computer becomes alive with fast-flowing information. If we know what we are trying to do with the input data, such as striking the average of a list of figures, which then constitutes the output, there is no difficulty. Uh, blah, blah, blah. The whole thing is simple because we have specified the goal, the system, and the algorithm, and has largely forgotten the entire arrangement to proliferate variety. Once the concern is to link a high variety input with a high variety output, however, we have the basis for an anastomotic reticulum. Now the computer needs to be programmed. 
That is, needs supplying with an algorithm that will organize the reticulum, and this can be done only if there is a known goal. Um, a subtle point is this, or the subtle point is this. If the goal is not recognized in detail, a heuristic is required, so the computer must be supplied with an algorithm determining a heuristic. That is the basic trick. Suppose we say the computer must learn from its own experience, as do we ourselves. Learn what? We do not know. What we meant was that the computer must find out over a period, by trial and error, the courses of action which lead to better results of control. We shall say what is a better and a worse result, but the computer has to determine a better strategy, a better control system than we, know our, than our, we ourselves know. And of course it can do it. Because its algorithm, what it is programmed to do, specifies a heuristic. Alter the solution you are now using a little bit, says the algorithm, and compare the outcome with it, the erstwhile outco uh, out outcome. If this is more profitable or cheaper or what el whatever else we say, adopt it. Go on like this until any variation you make leads to a worse result than you already have, then hang on to the solution until the situation changes, whereupon you may do better once again by producing a new variation." Uh, in this simple, innocuous statement, which a child could follow, we have the secret of the essentially biological process. Um, so, <laughs> uh, here he's saying that computer algorithms which deal with variety um, specify a heuristic. Now, uh, when we deal with something like uh, machine learning, do we think that the, the computer is doing more heuristic formulation or is it still just heuristic specification that we're, we're talking about here? So like, uh, oh, uh, Jay, go ahead. Yeah, I was reticent about putting my hands up because it wasn't exactly to do with machine learning, um, oh. but I have this other thing in my head, um, which is genetic algorithms. Yeah, um, go ahead. Because like he brings up the evolution example so much in this chapter. And like I was reading like when genetic algorithms really took off and it was later in the decade that he wrote this book. I wonder how he would have written it if it was um, a little later. Um, but in genetic algorithms, you have this idea called the building block hypothesis um, where the, the individuals being um, the pop, like the individuals being evolved, um, like sections of their representation can become um, like quote unquote chosen by the genetic algorithm, and like I guess those could be said to be like learned heuristics. Like the heuristic could be like, oh god, I don't know. Um, like actually, maybe not. But like, so if if the list that is be like represents the individual as like a plan, then I guess you could say the heuristic is like this section of a plan works well in this area of the environment. Um. That's what came to my mind. Um, that's the best I could do with what I know about this stuff anyway. But um, apart from that. Uh, Third Creed, go ahead. No, uh, I didn't realize my mic was on. My bad. <laughs> no problem. I said, I, said, I said to myself, I thought, he's a cool guy. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> he's a cool guy. <laughs> Jay, I think. I think it's you. <laughs> hey, compliments are allowed in this uh this space. <laughs> Sorry, third Cree. I just I just mixed up your mic icon with your uh hand up icon. Uh Nico, please go ahead. Yeah, so I've been reading um 
one of the major influences for Moore in the Electrical Biologist by Levins and Lewontin. And they're discussing this kind of like, you know, um, this genetic um, selection process, the kind of like, you know, Darwinian dominant view of like the kind of key to a lock or adapting to a niche, if you will. And a lot of what they say in that chapter, what Moore really builds upon um, is that it's not just the species itself being molded into a niche, but the species itself modifying, probably even minimizing the variety of the environment through its own, you know, for example, beavers modifying hydrology. Or I think further to explain it, for, uh, explain this another way is that like the species might modify through their usage of the environment to minimize their own, you know, variety that they, they would deal with, you know, like might move uh, for, through a forest to, you know, kind of like statistically uh, average like the patchiness of, of resources, if you will. So just want to like add another side to it beyond like this kind of passive kind of selection optimization, this kind of active modification of the environment to minimize variety. So. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is really a famous phenomenon with like search algorithms, right? Like, uh, you know, the way in which uh, journalism has been altered to be amenable to the Facebook algorithm, right? Uh, in order to get clicks, uh, the the algorithm in its process of optimization is changing its environment as well. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a big part to consider in this too. Um, okay, um, so then, uh, uh, oh, the other thing I just wanted to mention is like, yeah, you know, this really again reminds me of Dewey because one of Dewey's big things is like. He started out his career as a Hegelian, um, and uh, it was the influence of biology upon him that caused him to break with Hegelianism and to start to develop his form of, of pragmatic philosophy. Um, and I think, like, yeah, you know, this there's this real big undercurrent of um, biological thinking informing this 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 sort of philosophical or pragmatic thinking uh as well um all right so let's uh go on um so when you know we've talked about ecology uh a little bit uh the sort of things that are being discussed here um it says uh uh, the genetic heuristic works towards the unknown goal, a form of life that is competent to survive in circumstances and by techniques which are too complicated to analyze and for which there exists no optimizing computer. Um, and I guess this is this this kind of gets to that like idea of everything is trying to survive that Beer's talking about. Um, but I guess like that that sort of like selection or optimization process that is not like computed by any computer is kind of the bridge between like the biological sphere of thinking and like the computational sphere of thinking um, for beer here. Uh, so that's probably important too. Um, okay, so he gets to his several important points about heuristic control, uh, which ought to be carefully considered and appreciated. So uh, we will go through all of these, I guess, if everyone's okay with that. Um, maybe we'll just uh, read them out one by one uh, and talk about them. So uh, first one, 
I, I really get tripped up by the British spelling here of an an heuristic instead of a heuristic. <laughs> uh, is is that a British we thing? We don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. Okay. <laughs> it's very very. It's just my editor brain gets really. Uh, disrupted every time I read that. Um, all right. And heuristic will take us to a goal we can specify, but do not know, and perhaps cannot even recognize when we reach it. The algorithm, such as to get to the highest point, try one step in each direction and move to the next higher position, specifying this heuristic, stipulates the eventual discovery of a strategy. The strategy says the best thing to do is to go up for up here for so far, round this, along that, then up the other. This strategy cannot be worked out in advance. Um, all right. So here again, we have the relationship between the heuristic and the algorithm. Um, so earlier, uh, Bure seemed to kind of like state this algorithm as a heuristic but here is now calling it an algorithm so i do think that ambiguity is preserved um this uh you know go up uh keep going up kind of uh, approach uh it's just a little bit more specified in this in this formulation um but i do think it's interesting um this idea of moving from a heuristic to a strategy as like a higher level formulation um, is, I don't know, what, what do people think about that? Is that like, is that how we strategize, <laughs> I guess? Uh, Jay, go ahead. Uh, it reminds me of a way of framing something in kind of sandbox environments to do with um, like building, I guess, like, like agents that can move around in a world. Like I, I forget all of the terminology, so I'm sorry for anyone listening who knows it. Um, but like you can, it's like hierarchical actions basically, where like lower level actions are like turn left, turn right, like go forward one step, and then like you build these into like a, like not just like a list of actions, but like like a class of actions that all look like the same sort of list of actions. Um, and that is what I kind of think of as a strategy. So like instead of in a room, you're like saying to get to that doorway, I do left, 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 forward, forward, left, left, forward. I just, the strategy becomes walk to the door and the, and the, the strategy walk to the door is composed of the actions. Um, well, any number of actions that would get you to the door, right? But the strategy is to get to the door and the actions that compose it might be kind of different depending on what you want to do. Um, I'm not sure if that's what he's getting at or if that's a different thing entirely. Yeah, it seems kind of like what is being described here as a strategy is like a kind of like a completed plan for how to implement the heuristic. Um, uh, Third Creed, go ahead. I know I'm talking too much. Uh, the, uh, there reminds me of discrete optimization. There's this thing called simulated annealing, right? And there's a thing called like like a taboo search. And those remind me of there's sort of like meta heuristics on the heuristic of just climb the mountain and get to the tight point. But you know, you get to a local optimum then. So how do you get to your global optimum? You can use these other sort of meta strategies of like uh you know, don't go to places you've already been for explore for exploration, or like uh 
don't uh, you know don't get too certain too quickly or something like that. I don't know if it's the kind of thing he's talking about, but it's what I thought of. Yeah, definitely. They're like, yeah, they're exact. Uh, that's that's really interesting. Having like heuristics to uh, correct your heuristics. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, 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 I've just been uh, uh, d diving into this, but I know like the bleeding edge of uh, um of reinforcement learning is um st uh, stuff about like policies and uh, like hierarchical learning. And uh, uh, which is, you know, it's kind of wild that that's all that, that the snake's kind of eating its own table t tail. Like, uh, yeah, but like they're really like, uh, I guess like like the computers like weren't there yet in his day. But I mean, like, yeah, they, they, I see a lot of consonants. Um, actually, the, 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 there's even um, there's a paper that came out like uh, like in January, um, hierarchical reinforcement learning for open domain dialogue, which I have not read this, but I, I saved it on the, on the assumption that it would be important at some point. And it feels like like this sounds like exactly what he's talking about. Awesome. <laughs> That's really cool to hear. Um, all right, so let's move on to number two. Uh, if we give a computer the algorithm which operates the heuristic and wait for it to evolve a strategy, we may find that the computer has invented a strategy beyond our own ability to understand. This is quite possible insofar as it can make trials more quickly, more systematically, and more accurately than we can without pausing for play or rest and without forgetting the results. It is just like a man who plays chess all the time and memorizes all the lessons of all the games. We expect him to beat casual players like ourselves. I mean, you know, we've seen this computer do this thing in our lifetime right uh beat the best player um so yeah i mean i i think this is pretty familiar to all of us these days uh that uh jay go ahead uh three four and five all seem like pretty similar points um about like what our uh, computers can and can't do um, sure and they they reminded me of um like alan turing's paper computing machinery and intelligence where he talks about um, A.D. Lovelace's objection, <laughs> uh, Lady Lovelace's objection, sorry, I mixed mix it up with the name Ada, right? Yeah. Um, and he's talking about computers can't think, and Lady Lovelace says the analytical engine, like it, it'll just do what it's told and this kind of stuff. Um, he's saying like, um, well, it will do what it's told. And I think Beer says here explicitly, if you tell it to learn, it can do that too. <laughs> um. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so to take a quick look at three, four, and five, uh, so in what sense is, uh, a machine more intelligent than humanity? Um, yeah, it's exactly what you're describing there. Uh, if the machine ends up with a better strategy than we have got, and if we cannot understand why it is better that, but only that it is, it is small consolation to know that we taught it the heuristic trick by an algorithm. Einstein's primary school teacher was in much the same position. Um, so yeah, just because you taught someone who's way smarter than you doesn't mean you're smarter than them. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, again, this is like something we're super familiar with from everyday machine learning applications. Um, all right, number four, uh, the argument that computers can only do what they're told is correct, but highly misleading. It suggests that they must may remain the moronic slaves of their inventors. In fact, if we are telling them to learn and giving them a training algorithm, but they learn more efficiently than we do and must pass us in the ability to achieve heuristic control. Um, five, 
the argument that the output of a computer is only as good as its input, summed up in the phrase garbage in, garbage out, is true for algorithms specifying algorithms, but not for algorithms specifying heuristics. For it is easy to tell algorithmically the computer to suspect heuristically its own input, to test it for consistency. See how this happens. If one input line pumps in data which do not correlate with anything else in the system, the likelihood is that this input can pro is probably a random disturbance noise, uh, disturbance noise rather than information. The heuristic can then begin to diminish the weight its control strategy gives this input. If it then mixes only 0.9 of the suspect input with every whole unit of every other input, and the result is better control, it will try 0.8 and so on until the garbage input is ignored altogether. Uh, please note, we shall not understand why this has happened because we are very bad at intuiting statistical correlations and may well have a strong belief that the garbage input is terribly important. But the system will have eliminated its misleading source of information just the same. Um, so, you know, that that's promising. Uh, <laughs> Matt, go ahead. Yeah, last one of number five, and particularly what like reminded me of uh, of of, of uh, a deep learning because like yeah, yeah you, you actually can like feed it garbage and like it'll still get smarter <laughs> um, uh, from it, or you, you can feed it um a uh, data that's just like you know uh, it, you, you you want it to separate you know dogs from cats you know showing it bulldozers as you know as long as, long as it's still more pictures will actually still like make it better at doing that. Um, uh, 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 and uh, uh, yeah, this, you know, so, so the garbage in, garbage out, like uh, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't really apply there. Really, just the more data, the better. Kind of the dirtier, you know, like you know, not necessarily the dirtier the better, but I mean, you know, like having a certain amount of dirty data is good for that. And also, but they're also very hard to interpret, which is yeah, man, this is very prescient. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, this is this is really interesting stuff because. Uh, it just it just goes like so totally against every intuition about fidelity and about uh, sort of like research practice, right? Like you want like generally speaking, when you're doing research, you want to start with good data uh, and research off that. The idea that you can sort of like feed noisy data in and get better results is like very counterintuitive. Um, all right, so Matt, go ahead. Um, I, I said no, uh, no thing of like um, uh, with like th uh, th three and four. You know, I think it kind of goes back to the um, impossibility of intelligence explosion um, uh, 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 paper. And uh, uh, yeah, you, 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 you're saying that uh, you know, like like for now, like we're only you know training you with things to really be good at a very narrow task. But ultimately, it's you know like what we want it to be. And, uh, uh, you know, like what we don't really have is a system where, you know, the, uh, a chess playing um, uh, AI could maybe learn how to play Go. Though even that's like theoretically possible, like, like, you, like you could formalize and, uh, and uh, that and, uh, and formulate it of like have it have a payoff of like what games are good to learn and then tell it where the data is. But what we don't really have, and I mean, though, I mean, this, I guess, kind of would be the architecture for it, is something that really could decide what its objectives are. And uh, that's what's scary. Though for now, you know, I, I would say even if the computers are that, you know, the socio-technical infrastructure is still doing that. <laughs> like, uh, like Facebook as a whole, you know, uh, the, 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 advert, the, the surveillance industrial complex as a whole is doing this, even if, you know, no algorithm that Facebook is going to make is going to do this. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Absolutely. We see that kind of uh, adaptation in organizations. Like, I think, you know, the uh, CPUSSR is a great example of that, right? Like where you start with certain goals in mind and you try to formulate heuristics for following them. And then you end up with a completely different organization. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, number seven. Uh, secondly, or sorry, six. Um, the mechanism we are using is precisely the old servo mechanism discussed much earlier in which error correcting feedback is derived by comparator from actual outcomes contrasted with ideal outcomes. But the outcome is measured not in terms of the input data transformed by a transfer function, but in terms of the whole system's capacity to improve on its results as measured in another language. So whole system's capacity to improve on its results as measured in another language. This is the language in which we say it is better to increase or decrease the value of the output, which the closed system itself could not know. For instance, if the output of the system measures profitability and the system has a heuristic which produces fluctuations in profit, which it learns how to extinguish or to reinforce, it must be told that higher profits are better and lower profits are worse. All it can learn for itself is that some patterns of event push profit up and others down. Um, so yeah, exactly what you were saying there, Matt. Um, all right, uh, let's, let's keep going. Uh, seven. Secondly, the servo mechanism's feedback does not operate on the forward transfer function as such. It operates on the organization of the black box which houses the transfer function. That is, it experiments with the connectivity of the anastomotic reticulum. As effective structure emerges, this is what cuts down the capacity to proliferate variety. Okay, I think this is actually pretty important. So. We might want to talk about this one a little bit. This idea of operating on the organization of the black box. Um, this is this is really, really quite interesting. Because, so I guess is he saying here that um, the servo mechanism itself does not understand the particulars of the transfer function mechanism it's just operating on the transfer function as a black box uh sorry i was saying uh are there aspects of the machine that are black box to its own understanding because like we often think about the machine as a whole as a black box but there may actually be black boxing within the black box itself uh, third creed and then matt go ahead i'm going to defer to matt because i was going to talk about uh, neural nets. And I was like, okay. This is what I keep thinking about, like how it changes itself internally. And that feels like a rearrangement of con connectivity of an anastomic, and I can't say that word, reticulum to uh, to get the results at once. And then like the side that's looking at the results it gets, then it, you know, that's some sort of meta language on top of the neural net. But I think Matt has some expertise in this area, so I'm going to defer to him for that comment. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Matt. Uh, uh, r r r right on none of it, uh, uh, definitely. Um, uh, but but uh, 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 that, that, that sounds right. But uh, I, I was actually going to go for like, um, uh, so I mean, you can't really communicate directly with like your, um, uh, you know, 
with, with your uh, adrenal glands to change the amount um, of adrenaline that they're that they're producing. Like, yep. you know, like you are operating at multiple levels of abstraction, and like you actually, the, 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 there are channels like uh, between 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 your brain and uh, um, uh, and and other parts. But I mean, l- like you know, your, your your conscious self, you know, your, your little homunculus, you know, the, the, the little monster in the in the pineal gland, like you know, it, it can't actually just like go and reach in to to, to uh, cells and you know, like make them start producing more or less of a hormone. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. if we if we want to. Uh increase our adrenal levels then maybe we'll watch a scary movie uh but that's a you know very imprecise interaction with our adrenal system yeah okay cool um all right well i think that's a pretty important point to to bear in mind going forward because it does definitely have uh bearing on the vsm and its and its structure um all right uh number eight uh, although paragraphs six and seven above give better ways of thinking about the servo mechanism, they do not appear to change the mathematics which govern its stability. Hence the conclusion chapter two, that feedback dominates the outcome still holds. Hence everything depends on the other language criteria, which the system is given to decide what to learn and what to unlearn. Um, so, I, you know, I think here about uh, the example of uh, like mutualism or co-ops, right? It's like, well, yeah, no, the the uh, language you're specifying there is good, but the meta language uh, feedback is going to totally fuck over your aims um, from the overall capitalist market system. Uh, <coughs> so, yeah, that's that's pretty important. Um, uh, number nine. Uh, then suppose the control system has become so effective and has learned so well that it is now more intelligent than we are. Perhaps we shall no longer be clever enough to specify these other language criteria that it should use. We may no longer understand what they are. In that case, there must be another control system using the output of the first system as input and operating in another plane. This higher order other language system would experiment with the fluctuating outputs of the first system and produce uh, new outputs in the other plane. Feedback from there, compared with some other plan criteria, would establish the meaning of better and worse for the first system. For example, the first system might be controlling production to produce more or less of each product, utilizing all the plan. The second system would then evaluate this in terms of market demand, taking the output profitability and telling the first system uh, whether to learn or learn higher uh, or lower production strategies for each product. So this is the uh, this is the what is it the U machine uh, that is that is described in uh, the cybernetic brain the the uh, the 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 machine that Beer tried to make for the steel plant using the pond. I think he's describing this kind of mechanism here, right? In number uh, number nine, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Oh, you're muted. Uh, it's still muted. Uh, it must be on the hardware level. It's not on the software level. Okay. Uh, someone else want to uh, speak to this point? Uh, does this uh, sort of describe in general uh, what, what Beer was aiming for with that example? Um, could I ask... Yeah. Or you elaborate on how it relates to the pond example, because like the only thing I wrote in the margin here was that higher level control systems and strategies feed into lower level control systems and strategies. Oh um, yeah, I so deeper point really. 
Yeah, he's just saying, like, uh, you know, we get a... Um, yeah, I think if I remember correctly, the machine that interfaced with the market itself uh, was the first machine. And then the second machine was the one that actually provided the equilibrium. Um, so that's uh, that's what I remember from that example in the book. But I'd have to go back and look at it again to see if he's like really just drawing on his experience. Uh, I guess it's kind of beside the point, but uh, I thought it was a little, it is a little interesting to see in this book where like he's drawing on examples you've seen elsewhere and just being like, oh yeah, I see. This is like based on that experience or, you know, um, yeah. Would have been nice to have like an annotated version, <laughs> but I guess that's a little bit much to ask. Uh, yeah, it would have been okay. nice to have Shane here to riff off that actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, all right. So, uh, but we understand the point, right? Is that, um, the maximizing, um, like essentially we end up with a machine that produces outcomes that are too complex for us to understand. So we need another machine or a meta language to evaluate the desirability of those outcomes. Um, and this actually reminds me a lot also of um, if you've ever read um, if you've ever read uh, oh it's all backwards again <laughs> Ernst Cassirer uh, if, if you're familiar with Cassirer at all uh, he was a very famous um, uh, neo-Kantian uh, who was around at the same time as like Carnap and Heidegger and that. Uh, and he uh, wrote this book, uh, The Philosophy of Symbolic Forms, that is about uh, sort of meta elaboration of symbolic forms. Um, that just, I don't know, this really reminded me of that. Um, was influential in his time and then became very not so after World War II. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, let's, let's move on though. We got to keep this moving. Uh, so the criterion of profitability in turn might not be specifiable. Human thinking tends to give up the ghost when trying to compare short-term and long-term profitabilities. A short-run maximum profit strategy may break the firm in terms of goodwill and lead to bankruptcy. Then clearly the second system needs a third system to evaluate its outputs in a higher order language and to say what counts as more or less profitable. The third system would experiment heuristically with the time base of the second system's economic evaluations. So like, I don't know, maybe these systems exist today, but certainly it's, it's, it's interesting because like, it's almost like at that level, you're talking about something that's beyond simply an algorithm and like is about the system's interaction with the legal system. Uh, like, you know, because you have these like legal requirements to your shareholders to produce dividends and so on. Uh, Jay, go ahead. Yeah, first of all, this reminded me that profitability is not a simple goal. Because <laughs> um, I was thinking that until I got to this point 10. Um, it's like short term, long term profitability is okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then in terms of taking into account the long term probabilities, then that 
involves like forming higher level systems really doesn't it rather than just working within the the firm system you kind of have to f form like cabals with other companies really to like say you know let's not develop technology in this way because it's going to hurt all of our profits um more of that kind of stuff right so it's more than the firm at this point if you're thinking like that goal leads you to like i guess um deterritorialize would maybe be the word i was reading shane stuff the other day mm. um, um some other parts of other firms right yeah uh yeah you you might end up in like a kind of like zaibatsu uh kind of situation where they're doing like profit sharing about across or or, or keiretsu like profit sharing across firms and stuff um third creed go ahead just gonna real quickly add that that's that was a. Uh... That kind of thing was mentioned by uh, Ralph Miliband when he's commenting on mm. like the role of the state. He was saying like the state often functions as that thing, which is like, hey, don't you can't you know, don't don't eat yourself up too much. You know, you need that to survive or whatever. But this that, like the state will actually function against capitalist immediate interest and in its long term interest. And yeah, that, yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, that is like an idea that you see in uh, the German ideology a little bit, but definitely in Mark Miliband for sure. Um, yeah, uh, well, that's interesting. So this this uh, this third level algorithm is actually the state. Well, who knew? Uh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, all right. So uh, this argument continues until the hierarchy of systems and the levels of language that go with them reach some form of ultimate criterion. What is this? It can only be survival. The firm, like the man, makes things in order to be rewarded, in order to show profit, in order to continue to make things, and so on, uh, round and round, in order to perhaps to generate all sorts of side effects, in order to go on being. Um, so, you know, interesting here, it's like, I this is certainly um, the argument I'm familiar with from uh, Marcuse in terms of arguing that capitalism is irrational, right? Because Marcuse has this really strong Aristotelian influence as well. And he says, like, basically, capitalism is hostile to life. So it's irrational because the logic of life is, is it dictates survival and capitalism is driving towards extinction um uh so you know is this is sort of like we don't have a meta system to uh organize at this ultimate criterion level we we, we have lower level systems but we don't have that um so that's that's quite an interesting point as well um all right um and and what is true of the firm in this generation of management and true of this man son of his father becomes true of the firm as a continuing entity in perpetuity and of all men fathers of their sons that is the training process for here and now is the evolutionary process for the epochs ahead interestingly this really reminds me of the uh the uh uh what is it the thomist uh uh or like the na the natural law argument against abortion um right here what what he's saying in terms of survival 
uh, the, the like, you know, oh, the, the, the father begets the son and so on and so on. They have this interest in progeny. Um, therefore, that is natural. Therefore, abortion is unnatural and should not be done. Um, so again, coming directly out of Aristotle, uh, two rather different takes. Um, Jeremy, uh, Jay, go ahead. Uh, not even really, just a substantial comment, but that comment you just made just reminded me that the word viable for a child outside the woman's body is kind of, I guess, related to all of this. Um, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, uh, I think that uh, you could sort of make a Burian counter argument uh, to the uh, <laughs> the natural law theory uh, against abortion instead of saying, well, but no, you need a meta system to, to determine what is really viable. Uh, <laughs> Matt, go ahead. I, I, I really do like groove on the whole like uh, his, um, you know, his uh, um, like layers of systems of like, um, uh, yeah, like, like, uh, your, like your sense of taste is one system. Like, you know, you, like, you, you can't stop, um, uh, um, you know, finding sweet things like a certain level of pleasurable. I mean, except when something kind of higher level kicks in and, uh, uh starts making, uh, uh, starts maybe making you nauseous when, uh, but like, you know, the, the experience of it will still be what it is. Like, and it, it, one doesn't like override the other. Like, uh, uh, you know, like, like they're both there. It's just that, you know, there's this one that's like, you know, usually like a good bet in, in most situations, you know, it'll usually steer you right. But, you know, like, like yeah, there, there's this other system that's not that that's not always talking to you that, you know, like will we'll just occasionally snap you out of that. And like, you know, that, that's that's cool. I, I like that. Yeah. And you can also have like the, the feedback from the higher system down to the lower one, right? Like where your adult sense of taste is going to be quite different from your uh, childhood sense of taste because you have different nutritional needs. Um, anyway, that's that's an interesting uh, thing there. Um, okay, so, uh, so when it is said that a heuristic uh, organizes a system to learn by trying out a new variation in its operational control strategy, we might equally have said that a heuristic organizes a family of systems to evolve by trying out a new mutation in its genetic control strategy. Um, and he says he's dealt with this at length in decision and control. Um, the aim of adaptation is identical. So um, again, something we are super familiar with from uh, like deep learning and stuff uh, <laughs> these days. Um, all right. Um, so then we get on to meta languages. Um, so meta language is a language of a higher order in which propositions written in a lower order language may be discussed. Um, in logic, the basis of meta languages really are abstruse. Uh, it can be shown that virtually any logical language must contain propositions whose truth or falsity cannot be settled within the framework of that language. Logical paradoxes are the familiar, familiar example. Uh, so here we're talking uh, like ultimately about uh, Gödel and the uh, uh, incompleteness theorem, right? Uh, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Oh, uh, you still still can't hear you, Jeremy. Do you have a phone you could connect to Jitsi through? That might work. Oh, 
Okay. All right. Um, uh, yeah, so someone else, do you have a, a comment then about um, incompleteness and uh, meta languages? All right, uh, Jay, go ahead. Um, it's not exactly an interesting comment, but I guess in the absence of anything else, <laughs> um, is I at least know some uh, some stuff about this. Um, so, like in like a theorem proving system, the meta language would be the theorem proving system itself, um, and within that system, you can define you can define object logics, um, where you can and then working with those logics, you can get them to prove things, but you can also like describe the properties of the object logic itself, like whether or not it's consistent, like what pro propositions it can't prove. Um, but the meta logic can't say anything about itself. Um, mm. So you would have to use a different theorem prover, embed that meta logic within that theorem prover, and then say stuff about it in there. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you can't, the language can't speak about itself in a certain kind of sense that's very deep um, yeah. it's hard to really sum up really yeah yeah um absolutely uh and i was really so you know uh reading about the history of like the sort of foundation of mathematics uh debate and about hilbert's program and Gödel and all that stuff um what I was really blown away by was how after Hilbert's program failed, um, there were all these intellectuals who didn't like really despair about it, about the lack of completeness or the impossibility of completeness. They were just like, oh, no, we'll just go and work with that. Um, and that seems very much to be what Beer is doing here as well. Uh, and, and that was always something a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around. Um, but I definitely uh, find it very interesting here. Um, I think uh, I will just uh, read out Jeremy's comments and then we'll go to you, Matt. Um, so uh, Jeremy says uh, that the platform for change is written uh, with a text and a metalinguistic text that addresses the text. So, um, you know, Beer is exactly following his, his advice uh, here. Um, and also that uh, platform characterizes a government as a meta system to society as a system. So again, like totally agrees with what Miliband was saying uh, with like Marxist state theory about how the state is there to regulate capitalism. Um, finally, uh, from Stafford Beer's point of view, uh, the meta system should only kick in when the system is out of whack and therefore government should only exist when society gets out of whack and should not prod, should prod it back into working properly. Um, so, you know, in a certain sense, we could say that, you know, in a limited way, uh, the governments that are dealing with COVID-19 right now and are, are trying to uh, evaluate when the ideal point is to do capitalism again uh, are really doing their job, right? Like, they're, they're functioning in a very Burian sense relative to capitalism. Um, it's just that uh, perhaps capitalism is not a viable system. So, yeah. But, but you know, the description of the state is on point. Um, all right. Uh, uh, Matt, let's go to you. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh... 
the um oh damn I I I I I, 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 I oh yeah, yeah um uh, so, so um yeah and I I think um when we talk about like nationalizing industries or or whatever well like the thing is that um uh, um you know we I, I think we are you know, we go to that because government is right now like the only institution in our lives that actually has meaningful democratic channels while you know like like beer was always talking about like actually just you know making you know uh, democratic channels like throughout the entire economy throughout the entire society and so yeah yeah, yeah. Well, like that that, that 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 does make sense because you know like we associate government with like you know slightly less psychopathic um uh, 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 um policies because it's building it's it's uh, uh non-hyper authoritarian thing that you know is capable of looking more than five steps you know ahead and can actually think of like long-term survivability but yeah i mean like he wants to bake that resilience like into the rest of society also yeah like uh, um i just got into miliband uh, it is the first marxist state theory that i grooved with at all um mm. i just read coup in chile and uh, uh that that was uh uh that 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 was that was dope. Um, uh, with with the Gerdell stuff, um, though, uh, what I was originally gonna say, say was um, you know, the the the, the way you sidestep that is uh, a you know have um, just be okay with like multiple uh, mutually you know uh, inconsistent um uh, um uh, um uh, paradigms and just you know have like some way of flitting between them, and uh, uh, yeah, you just got you just gotta you just gotta roll with that because it, it's it's not it's not that completeness is impossible. It's just that consistency and completeness is impossible. If you're okay with a little bit of inconsistency, you know, it's fine. And also empiricism, you know, like I see why, you know, beer orients himself around feedback because, yeah, yeah well, like, uh, the, you know, uh, uh, incompleteness is only about like the eternal world of forms and how it doesn't actually exist. He killed, he killed Plato, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, in the real world, which, you know, it, 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 it's fine because you can take observations from, uh, from reality. Yeah. Uh, ironic given, uh, Gödel's other intellectual commitments, um, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not an empiricist uh but uh anyway that's uh that's all beside the point um all right uh let's uh yeah uh, let's let's move on with that in mind um okay uh so we get to the sort of toy example uh in this chapter i found this example to be a little bit um a little bit hard to follow uh I think it would be greatly added or aided by an animation, you know, just sh sh seeing the machine move, I think would help so much in, in making this comprehensible. So, uh, yeah, uh, go ahead. Uh, third creed. Uh, when I was reading this, like, I think about a year ago, I made an animation of it or actually it's a little piece of, it's a code pen and I'll link it here. It looks like garbage. Like I made it so I could understand this, not for presentation. <laughs> okay. That's that actually awesome. says at the end of this that he made one himself, right? <laughs> oh, really? That's that's very good. Um. So, uh, I, 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 yeah. So, like again, this is uh, it, it's just the lack of motion that I think it conveys or, or causes a lack of clarity here because is describing a moving system through text um, and, a, and a static picture. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's a pretty good example. Um, so, okay. Again, it, it, it's a little bit difficult to uh, discuss this, this example um, easily, but essentially it is a uh, machine with with 
10 nodes and two uh, possible outcomes, right? And the probability between the two outcomes is going to be um, uh, adjusted by the uh, orientation of the connections within the machine. Um, and there are there is a reward and punish button on the machine as well. And if you reward the machine, it will send it one way. You punish it, it'll send it the other. So you can adjust the probabilities to get them more to the sort of green you like or the red you like. Is that the, the basics of what's being discussed here? Okay, yeah. Um, all right. Okay, so we'll, we'll move on past the, like, the, the sort of, you know, real detailed discussion uh, to um, page 60 when he says, uh, pause for a moment, however, why does this first man... Uh, speaking meta one, prefer red to green. It is just a psychological quirk. Now suppose a second man comes along who happens to be the first man's boss. He's observing the effect of these two lights in another context. He finds that when the green light goes on, someone gives him 10 pounds, but when the red light goes on, he is told to pay a 10 pound fine. At first, he tries to tell the meta, man, uh, meta one man about this. Change your preference to green, he says. I know how to make money that way, and I will share the proceeds with you. But the first man cannot understand him. He speaks Meta One, a language of aesthetics. He has not heard about money at all, and he d and does not want to know. The second man is a speaker of Meta Language Two. How is he to convey his point, expressible in Meta Two, alone to the Meta One speaker? So uh, this is quite interesting because. Uh, this very closely sort of matches up with what Marx is going on with, uh, going on about in the value form discussion in chapter one of Capital Volume One, right? Uh, with the, the, the use value, exchange value dichotomy, um, uh, where, uh, you know, money is the universal equivalent is kind of providing a meta language to discuss all the different use values. Um, but yeah, uh, any any comments about these this this first meta language example? Uh, yeah, Jay, go ahead. Yeah, sorry to chip in so often, but um, <laughs> I just noted down like a like a humorous example to me at least. Um, so my marginal comment was, for example, the boss only understands meta two, the language of money. The workers have to translate their demands into this language. So they form a union and they make demands or else. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, like this is super interesting uh, in terms of describing the uh, contradictions of capitalism as a meta language translation problem. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, okay, uh, so uh, next, next example. Uh, man two says to man one, I hold you responsible for this machine. I am a going abroad, but I am recording the greens and reds. If when I return, I find that red has predominated, you will be replaced by another operator and you will lose your bed and board in my house. But if green predominates, your room will be floodlit with the red light you enjoy. Note that it is no use trying to talk about money in Meta 1, which is an aesthetic language, and profitability is a notion which only Meta 2 speakers understand. 
The second algodonic loop translates meta 2 into meta 1, and meta 1 can be translated into machine language by the first algodonic loop. If all this happens and man 1 succumbs, the operating procedure is reversed. He still does not know why the machine responds to his switches, and still less how. He no longer knows why he's due to produce an outcome green, which goes against the grain for him. All he knows is expressed in the one language he understands, meta 1, namely that it will be better in the long run for his color sense to start training the machine to shine green. To do this, he must press the reward switch whenever the green light shines and the algodonic receptor is so arranged that this and the punish switch for the red outcome pushes the wooden strip up. Uh, the fable we are recounting, however, really begins like this. Once upon a time, there were two philosophers discussing cupidity. They considered it possible that a man might be persuaded to undertake an entirely pointless task for a suitable reward. So, by way of a trial, they sent for a member of their staff. They told him in a, that in another room was a box with an operator, and that the whole purpose of this box was to light either a red or green bulb. We will give you 10 pounds, they said, every time the green light comes on, but you will have to give us 10 pounds of the red bulb lights. They spoke to him, of course, in Meta 2, because that was his language, but they were really using an algodonic loop. He knew nothing about the test of his own greed and had never spoken the philosophical language in which cupidity is discussed, which is called Meta 3. Um, this could be continued indefinitely. So uh, uh, this also reminds me a lot of the Republic, um, uh, what what Buer is, is, is uh, providing in this fable here, right? Is like, you know, the men of gold are here discussing cupidity and they tell the men of silver to go, you know, make these uh, <laughs> demands upon the workers. Uh, Jay, go ahead. Uh, I don't think we ever actually talked about what an algodonic loop was and I don't totally grasp it myself, so maybe that would help. Okay, absolutely. Um, um, let's Let's have a look at it. Uh, so the algodonic loop, um, I, th I think it mostly starts to come up in the trainer and a dog bit on, um, the end of yeah, the right. So, uh, he cannot explain a machine language and the machine does not understand his language. So he communicates with the machine through an algodonic loop. Um, and essentially this is overcoming a uh, linguistic barrier by means of reward and punishment, uh, by means of essentially like, uh, what is it, um, operant conditioning. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that's all the algodonic loop is, is you use, you use the, the carrot and the stick to communicate with someone who doesn't understand your language. Um, because in some sense, uh, reward and punish is 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 a is a transcendental language um yeah uh all right it, it will be formulated in different terms in each different sub language but the the principle of Al the algodonic loop holds um all right um so he's talking about just sort of infinite uh regress uh you know uh, meta-languages upon meta-languages upon meta-languages. Um, but at some point, the nth framework must be reached, which from this system's internal standpoint, at least, will have to be declared an absolute framework. So here we get, uh, you know, like Hegel's response to 
uh, like Zeno's Paradox or Infinite Regress, Bad Infinity, right? Um, you have to impose a limitation on the system because limitation is the basis for freedom. Uh, if you're stuck in Bad Infinity, you just go on and on and on and there, there's no organization. Um, so in good logic, this cannot be done, but in practice, it has to be done. Hence, all finite systems are limited and incomplete. We ourselves, our firms, our economies, all suffer from this limitation. And because we do and must, the best possibility for change directed towards ever more successful adaptation lies in a reorganization of these hierarchies of command. We shall not beat the ultimate limitation like this, but we can choose its form. Uh, so, you know, coming up with the ultimate meta system is not really the solution, right? Because the ultimate meta system isn't ultimate in an absolute sense. It's ultimate in an arbitrary sense or a practical sense. Um, any, any comments about this whole thing we've just gone over? Because I think this is the substance of what this section of the chapter covers. Uh, Jay, go ahead. Yeah, just to echo what Third Creed just said in the chat, um, red light men of the world unite. <laughs> nice. Yes. I want red light. <laughs> I I prefer Betamax to uh, VHS. Uh, this is this is what I must have. It is my my aesthetic language. Um, all right. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so. Uh, Rudy, go ahead. Yeah, I think kind of what I got from this was the point that if you don't leave room for error, you might never be able to recover it when you need it. And I'm also thinking about the way we have all this so-called trash DNA inside us, which is supposedly not used, even if that's another biological question. And all this stuff, like how nature tries to live in some room by randomizing. I thought it was very, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for sure. Uh, third Creed, go ahead. Just reminds me of like the, I think we, you were discussing Kyle the other day about the fragility of capitalism, because it's like to be robust, you have to have a redundancy or that's a, one strategy. And if you're hyper efficient, then you aren't robust because you aren't redundant and I don't know if that's exactly the logic, but I, I, you were saying something about this on the podcast the other day. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. That's like a, a sort of argument about um, systems fragility that's often applied to capitalism. Uh, that's like, yeah, if you're over-optimizing, uh, you you're limiting your capacity to deal with variety. And we've had really dramatic examples of that uh, in reality just these days. Um, all right, uh, Matt. Hello. Um, uh, uh, yeah, and uh, uh, to, to, to touch on the uh, 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 gene expression stuff, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, like, 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 like we're finding, like, honestly, like we find a new version of this like every couple of months of, of like some way that that junk DNA really isn't junk DNA. And like, you know, we, we, we found like epigenetics and just uh, uh, how like, you know, colds can like change gene expression. Uh, and yeah, rules of neuroscience in particular, I like to say is we don't really understand the brain. Um, uh, and you know, like we are finding how much of, uh, of neuron activity actually is, is like going after gene expression. 
which is like not not, not only like totally different than like the the, the synapse thing that that, that you know they, they usually focus on, but also is a uh, you know kind of to, to what Beer's uh, talking about with some of these things operates on a very different time scale because you know like like a synapse, um, uh, yeah, like a neuron firing happens in seconds. You know, the gene expression thing happens over you know that, that that's something that's over the course of days or weeks or or, or whatever, and just like yeah, it's all it's all, it's all this weird crap. It, it's yeah, that's that's super interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the rather basic example that comes to my mind uh, when thinking about this, this sort of like the value of error, the value of noise um, is like, you know, uh, something like the way that uh, uh, like dithering was done on the Sega Genesis. Um, which relied on the blurriness of the of the image to produce a transparency effect. Um, if you have a high fidelity screen, that intended uh, signal is actually lost uh, because there isn't enough noise in the picture to convey it. Um, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and Jay, go ahead. Um, are we coming towards the end of the chapter now? Yep, we're just wrapping it up. Okay, all right. Um, so right at the end here, I have one last question, which is, um, again, this may, might be kind of just like a complete misunderstanding, uh, but um, I'm trying to think of the ways to think of error. One is like a necessary part of good system dynamics. And on the other hand, possibly as like a, like a, like a signal that suggests change is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about what kinds of error are the errors you want <laughs> or and maybe that that's not the same for everyone right maybe there's not an objective kind of error you know that's good for everyone within the system like within for everything within the system um but it's good for the system overall um yeah um so uh beer says um the vital point is that mutations in the outcome should always be allowed. Error control to a reasonable level is not the absolute enemy we have been taught to think it. On the contrary, it is a precondition of survival. Immediately, the environment changes and begins to favor the green outcome. There is a chance-generated green result to reinforce, and the whole movement towards fresh adaptation begins too. The flirtation with error keeps the algodonic feedbacks toned up and ready to recognize the need for change. Um, although this point clear, emerges clearly from a consideration of biological fact for viable systems, and although it is well illustrated by our simple machine, it is not understood by management. In the firm, error is anathema. This is not to say it is avoided, of course not, but it is treated with hostility, not as having a value of its own. A perspicacious manager would review every mistake made within his command as mutant behavior and make himself receptive to the algodonic feedback the incident invariably generates. His observed tendency is on the contrary normally to concentrate wholly on correcting the fault. Thus the system's errors are wasted as progenitors of change and change itself is rarely recognized as required. All the managerial emphasis is bestowed on error correction rather than error exploitation. In turn, errors themselves are reiterated as being essentially bad. Um, thus, it follows that when change is really understood for some extraneous reason to be necessary, 
People resist this need because to attempt change is automatically to increase the error rate for a time while the mutations are under test. Um, so yeah, when do you know uh, what error tolerance you want? Um, very good question. Uh, I guess what I would say is like, you probably want to have um, algodonic feedback from every level of your system so that you can see if the stress that the system is undergoing is actually uh, causing breakage or pushing things to a breaking point. Um, it's kind of like when we're talking about right now, um, when, uh, like, you know, when people are talking about public health right now and they're saying like, okay, if we're gonna actually deal with this virus, we need a certain amount of immunity built up in the population. Now, one uh, conclusion from that idea was the herd immunity strategy. And generally speaking, that strategy has been a disaster and people have like, you know, pulled back on that. But as we move into the next phase of this crisis, um, we don't have a vaccine. The vaccine's probably a ways out. And so we really do need to introduce a certain degree of exposure uh, in a controlled manner that is going to uh, let us survive until we do have a vaccine. Um, and so I think that's kind of the sort of thing that's being discussed here um, is like the error is definitely not desirable from a individual human standpoint or just from a general standpoint of like, you know, empathy to other people. Uh, but if you are a public health official who is worried about social collapse, uh, then you do need to consider as introducing a certain amount of error into the population, right? Uh, Matt, go ahead, and uh, we'll go to Mark next. Yeah, and I think it, it, it also goes in, into, like, um, you know, uh, like, what exactly are the communication channels and what exactly what algodonic signals actually are taking uh, priority? Because I mean, uh, uh, yeah, one, one thing uh, uh, that, that that pops up a lot uh, in like beers working chili and stuff is like getting the exact KPIs right. Because like right now, you know, like our system actually does kind of value, um, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, profits for shareholders like more than lives. Like you know, the mm -hmm. the, the, the the little man in the pineal gland feels you know like the shocks to money more than the shocks to people's lives. Like he's just more sensitized to that. And like you know, that's it's fucked up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. Uh, no, Mark, please go ahead. Okay. Uh, as usual, I just had kind of an impressionistic point, but uh, reading the whole part about error just made me think of what uh, little Six Sigma training I've had, which is all about a complete elimination of defects. But um, I don't know. It, uh, on the flip of that, then you're when you're working on that, you're actually... Uh, when you're coming up with projects to work on to reduce defects, you're at least limit. You know, you're you're investigating the errors, so um, they might have a have a you know fruitful uh, <laughs> you know you know rate, train of thought come from them. But uh, um, anyways, yeah, just kind of a side point there as usual. Well, yeah, that, that really reminds me of like when Pickering came to uh, Kyoto University to talk, 
Um, and uh, one of the members of our uh, faculty um, stood up to sort of offer a rejoinder to Pickering's speech. Uh, he was like, well, okay, like this performance stuff is great. These adaptive systems are awesome. But when I get in an airplane, I want it to predictably get me where I'm going and not just sort of like through trial and error, learn whether like learn the best way to fly. Um, and, and, and so like that sort of Six Sigma approach, which is very contrary to what Veer is describing here, uh, I guess probably has some applications within certain domains. Um, but it is, a it is a big question of like, when can we implement it? When is it positive to implement it? Uh, okay. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, but I, I just it's like um I I I I'm not necessarily like, like oppose that I think I think it's just sort of different um points of emphasis because like so, so for instance you know as as adaptive as biological systems are you know like the, there is no room for error when it comes to like how a protein is folded like that that the, 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 like all this all this adaptability like uh, um uh, comes from like certain components that really are just reliable they're solved. And like like the, the, those Lego pieces then build up the layers of abstraction that where all this complexity comes into. But like like th th that that none of that can exist without a foundation of stuff that is like you know like there's no yeah there 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 there's there, there, there's no uncertainty to it. Like you know like there, there's basically no errors. Right. Um, uh, Mark is saying Pure uh, seems to throw in a heuristic. Let's not have a ten percent error, error rate. Let's add an order of magnitude and have a one percent error rate um <laughs> so, uh, so, sorry, uh, 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 last thing of like i think also you know like a, a part of being an, a viable system is understanding that you have a finite amount of attention and so really like the fewer things that you have to pay attention to like, like the better so i mean yeah like having certain things where like you know you, you can always rely on you know these screws and these nails are just like you know there's, there's nothing weird about them yeah like that's yeah, uh, that's valuable. And um, I think it also gets back to uh, Beer's description of the computer, right? The algor algorithm implementation of a simple algorithm uh, is, is just going to be, uh, you know, it's going to work. The computer will do what you tell it. Uh, that's, uh, that's something that uh, Beer is uh, focused on there. Um, so there is that certain degree of uh, reliability that we're looking for. It is just a question of how much. Um, all right. Um, so I think we've gone on quite a, a long time. This was an intense chapter because of all those 15, 13 points there. Um, but we'll go on to chapter five next week uh, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing all of you then. All right. Thank you. Yep. That was a good Thanks. chat. Yeah, thanks. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Thanks,